Hi, and welcome to Stefan Libera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today, my guest is Christian Decker from Blockstream. So Christian rejoins me on the show, and we talk about Greenlight, which is an easy way to have a hosted Lightning node set up for you by the Blockstream team. We talk about some of the trade-offs around this, who is it for, as well as talking about Lightning Network generally, where it's at today, the latest stuff coming with Core Lightning, as well as some discussion about any prev out. This show is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin. And if you want to help educate yourself or your friends and family about Bitcoin, there is the Swan Bitcoin Canon. So swanbitcoin.com slash C-A-N-O-N. This is basically a list of curated rabbit holes by various people in the space. Lynn Alden has one, Matt O'Dell, Jameson Lobb, Guy Swan. I've got one as well. Basically, these are different rabbit holes with curated lists of resources that you can use to learn about Bitcoin. The mission at Swan is to create 10 million new Bitcoiners. This is not just people who are stacking sats, but people who truly understand the importance of Bitcoin. Education is key to accomplishing this mission, and we hope the Canon will be a collaborative effort to help make it easier to share Bitcoin education with the world. That's swan.com slash Canon. Voltage is paving the way as the leading enterprise-grade Lightning solution for anyone building on Layer 2. Lightning is the future for Bitcoin payments and can no longer be overlooked. Voltage helps to integrate Lightning and payment infrastructure into your solution quickly and in a hassle-free manner. Don't waste time with maintenance and integration, deployment and iterating. Whether you want to route payments, build your small business or scale an enterprise company, Voltage is the solution. Don't stumble on your own infrastructure. Go get started at voltage.cloud. If you are looking to upgrade your Bitcoin hardware security, CoinKite.com are the creators of my favorite Bitcoin signing device, the Cold Card. And they have the Cold Card MK4, which is available for pre-reservation and has been shipped out to some individuals. I've had some and I've been playing around. I find it really slick and smooth to use. It is faster and it has all kinds of new features. It's got more memory. It has two secure elements and you can use it with NFC. So there's all kinds of features and things you can play around with as part of the cold card. I think the most popular feature is being able to use it in an air-gapped way. So you can use a micro SD card and move that XPUB file out of your cold card into your computer and use that to move transactions back and forward. So go and buy yours at coinkite.com. Christian, welcome back. Hey, Stefan. Thank you very much for having me back. Yeah, so it's a crazy world out there, right? As we speak right now, it seems like the uh, UST thing is uh, breaking down as we speak. But nevertheless, development continues and the Lightning Network is growing. And I'm excited to see that. I, I definitely see a lot of cool things happening in the Lightning world. And uh, yeah, wanted to chat to you today about what you're working on with Core Lightning now, not see Lightning anymore. And uh, of course, Green Light. And uh, yeah, just kind of what's happening in the space. So uh, yeah, let's start a little bit with the Green Light stuff. Because uh, as I understand, like from my reading, it seems the idea is, hey, look, it's difficult for people to fully do their own thing. The idea is Blockstream is going to do this as a service to help people make it easier uh, and not have to be as deeply technical into the Linux and the management of the node and things like this. Could you give us your summary? Like what is the reason behind Greenlight? Absolutely. Yeah. So until now, it, uh, it basically has always been the choice when you wanted to join the Lightning Network. You had a choice of either going for a simple custodial wallet that would do everything for you. You didn't have to learn anything. 
but there is the evil C word in there, right? Custodial. And then on the other side, you had to basically dig through hundreds of tutorials, learn about Linux, learn about how, to, how Bitcoin works. And then on top of that, have to learn about, uh, about Lightning. And uh, we as a community certainly didn't help by basically shaming people into, oh, you have to learn this and this and this and learn multisig before you ever touch Bitcoin, because otherwise you're at risk of losing, losing your funds. And so that had the effect that we got, uh, we got many new community members that were really, really well informed. But I always think about the community members that we lost along the way, right? Where we uh, that didn't have the time, didn't have the incentive to, to read through all of this, this huge pile. And so we thought about how can we improve this? And, and Greenlight is basically what, uh, what the end result is of that. Uh, we wanted to pull sort of the uh, positive experience of seeing what Lightning could do for you before you had to invest the uh, the time to actually learn about this stuff, become become a self sovereign participant in the network, and basically give you a glimpse of what the payout will uh, will be once you do that. And so, what Greenlight is is basically we looked at a uh, at a Lightning node and thought about how could we split it up. Core Lightning has always been a very modular. A system that has had parts that you could swap out and uh, customize for your own needs so that it very easily was a, uh, we were able to pull apart and, and sort of distribute parts in different different locations. And what we ended up with is Greenlight, a hosted non-custodial service. And uh, we think that it is sort of a new point on the spectrum by basically us running uh, the infrastructure basically provisioning all of the stuff that you have to do for to run a lightning node including watchtowers including uh, databases including backups including authentication including the bitcoin backends and and so on and so forth and uh, you as a user have basically a remote control for that node and you always have uh, you are the only one that has access to the signing keys which are needed to uh, sign off on any changes that touch your funds because these really are your funds we are not managing them for you you are in full control of uh, of what happens with these funds gotcha and so in terms of target user for greenlight i'm thinking out loud here that it would be let's say a business who wants to get started with lightning but they don't have somebody who's like a deep in the weeds bitcoin and lightning enthusiast who's going to spend all day every day trying to figure this out uh, and potentially for an interested person who just wants to play around. Is that essentially what your target user is here? Exactly. So we do have two target audiences uh, in the end. We certainly have the uh, inexperienced but uh, but enthusiastic uh, end user in mind that wants to sort of, they would just want to download a wallet on their phone, get started paying and, and receiving uh, Lightning payments. And uh, that includes uh, small business owners that sort of are at the beginning of their journey. And uh, on the other hand, we also want to provide a platform for app developers that might be really, really good at what they do best, namely user experience, user interfaces, and, and just building those innovative uh, applications. But they might not have the expertise for, uh, for Lightning. So we sort of serve these two uh, audiences by basically providing a, an application programming interface to uh, application developers and by providing a node setup in a matter of seconds uh, to, to end users. 
So the user experience should uh, should really be that uh, you go to the app store, you download an app, you get shown 24 words, and you're done. Basically, in the time it took you to, uh, to, to open the app, in the meantime, we've spun up your personal Lightning node, which is a open source core Lightning node, as, uh, as you would find it if you installed it yourself. And uh, you can then basically just interact with it and start performing payments, receiving payments, and, uh, and doing anything you want, be that podcasting or be that participating in online auctions or tipping people on Twitter. I see. And so for that user, I guess they've got a few different choices in their mind currently, right? They might just use, let's say, they go and buy a Rust by Blitz as an example, and then they do Core Lightning on that. And how would you distinguish that kind of idea of like buying this kind of node in a box and setting it up in your business versus doing a green light setup? So we, we definitely encourage anybody to go for the Raspberry Blitz uh, version. Uh, Greenlight is not intended as the final destination for, uh, for users. It's a way for, uh, for users to onboard, get some education, learn about how this stuff works, and eventually we, uh, we'd like to people to actually offboard into their own infrastructure because that is ultimately the most secure way of, uh, of operating on Lightning. Um, there are some trade-offs in, uh, in, in Greenlight. Uh, we do have some visibility that we don't really want. And so eventually we'd, we'd like uh, people to offboard and take on their own responsibilities. And therefore, that also informs our target audience being enthusiastic new users that might not have all of the experiences to actually run a Raspberry Pi with Lightning or set up anything else. We are trying to sort of grab market share from the custodians, which we don't think are a, a good option at all, and, and sort of get them more on the path towards uh, self-sovereignty. I see. And so then is the idea that somebody might, and maybe this is going to happen as well, is that there may be wallet providers out there who are actually going to use Greenlight in the background to sort of quickly spin up a node for their users. And I guess that's partly, that that's maybe from a green light point of view, that's sort of partnering on the business side, but in the background, actually it's green light sort of helping them spin up the nodes that are required for those end users who, who just want the you know, wallet on their phone. Absolutely, that that is uh, that is something that uh, that we are already doing. We announced during Miami, for example, that Breeze is going to migrate over to to Greenlight, and we have a couple of uh, other integration partners that we are currently partnering in a in a closed beta form, uh, and sort of trying to build out a bit of an ecosystem of applications. The most interesting part here is why is it interesting for application developers is because we don't actually include the node with with the application itself it means that a user can share a single node among many different applications and that has a number of advantages for users but also for app developers for users for example they don't have to split up their funds right you don't have to have 50 bucks on a podcasting 2.0 app and 50 bucks on your lightning wallet and then as soon as you want to pay 51 you're out of luck uh, you can actually pool off all of your funds. You can amortize the management effort that you would put into a single node. 
and not uh, multiply that by the number of apps. But also for app developers, it's really, uh, really interesting because the the mode to switch from one app to the other and just sort of try it out for uh, for a couple of minutes doesn't mean that you sort of have to tear down a whole different app, move funds over and then reopen channels and all of a sudden the day has finished, right? And you still haven't seen what, what the app can do. And so this is this is general to this remote uh, node uh, setup, but I think that that light uh, that green light can help us sort of popularize this and eventually get uh, get more people into a more efficient uh, deployment of Lightning for each user. I see. And for some users, it might make sense as well if they want to use it more like a remote node, I suppose. Um, and also, there are various aspects that are being done professionally by you know a team who manages it, this as their job. So I guess it's similar to like cloud computing, right? Like people using a cloud service. Well, it's sort of like a cloud node. I guess the other question people would have is, so at least with my understanding of Lightning, when you do, like, let's say we have a channel and, you know, I'm either routing a forward, um, a payment through to you, or I'm directly the one making the payment to you. So in practice, uh, my node and your node have to both sign the new state of transactions before we can have that transaction completed on the Lightning Network. So how does it work then when the user is still holding their own keys, but the node is in the cloud? Like how does the node, how is the node able to sign an update to the channel? Exactly. So the point here is that basically whenever we have uh, we have anything that requires a sign-off from the keys, be that an on-chain transaction, a connection open there there's a cryptographic handshake involved there or a change in the channel state we need we do need to have a signature from the keys so what we do is we basically take this message that that contains all of the information for this request and we send that over to the signer uh, the signer independently verifies that everything is okay and only then signs it and sends it back now as you correctly point out if the signer isn't there uh, there's not a whole lot we can do and that is also why we, uh, why initially we concentrate on the end user experience, where routing is not something that uh, uh, that that happens uh, very often. And I do believe that sort of uh, newbies that that just want to learn about uh, stuff are most likely to be leaves in this in this network of of, uh, of node graphs. So it definitely isn't meant for uh, for huge routing nodes because i think they would have the chops to actually run uh, run it on their own infrastructure so that's that's yet another incentive to sort of once once you want to dip your toes into routing territory you might you might be better uh, suited for uh, for a self-hosted version I see. So yeah, so it's seen more like it's training wheels, you know, yeah. like the idea is you, you're you on this for a little while and then eventually you're ready to move out on your own like an adult and uh, take the training wheels off. And so as part of that management for the user, the training wheels, things like uh, authentication you mentioned as well, I'd be curious, how does this work from the user's point of view? As I understand, let's say in like a Lightning Labs L&D paradigm, they've got the macaroon. And mm-hmm. so they the idea is you might tra- you might have the macaroon that is the admin macaroon that allows you to then remote control that node. So how does it work in a core lightning and a green light context in this way? Absolutely, yeah. So so what we do is uh, we we basically implemented the programming interface, the RPC, uh, using gRPC, uh, which is also what uh, what uh, LND uses, by the way. And underneath that, we use an encrypted transport called uh, called MTLS. So uh, that means uh, that stands for Mutual Transport Layer Security. And the idea here is that uh, both the 
both the client as well as the node have a certificate and the certificate uh, is unique for each of these devices and only if the correct uh, client connects to the right node we will uh, we will uh, actually enable access on top of that we may eventually layer on macaroons to sort of once you have access restrict uh, individual users but that is currently uh, not yet built out but certainly possible currently if you have access to the to the rpc you have you have full access that's one dimension of authentication the other dimension of authentication is well what tells the signer that uh, the operation that it is about to sign off actually comes from a user and not an operator or an attacker that might have taken over the uh, the host running the node right and so for that we have uh, we have built what we call end to end security where the uh, where the client whenever he, uh, they issue any uh, any command they will sign off on that command and the command will be passed along to the signer and as as context and the signer will then take apart this context co uh, so there is a balance change of x in channel y which command does this correspond to? And only if uh, if it has a uh, if it has a matching command from a correspond uh, from an authorized uh, client, will it sign off on on changes? Um, so it is very important for us to make sure that uh, that we never ever uh, have control over funds, and even if our hosts were compromised, then then well, it wouldn't be uh, affect your funds in any way. Excellent. And so as an example, in the future, then, let's say you want to be a merchant and you might want to have different permissions for the employees in the store, in the store as opposed to you, the merchant who's running the node. So maybe that's an example where it might have abilities for you to give permissions that say, okay, only refunds up to this amount, not yep. like being able to send, you know, just treating everything like it's a hot wallet and they can just spend back all this money. And obviously then there's all this possibility for like embezzlement and so on. Exactly. So like, that's, that's one example. Like, like if you if you have a point of sale that might only be able to create invoices, whereas an back office might be able to perform a pay payroll as well as create invoices and then you might have an accountant that only has read only access and and so on and so forth it's also quite interesting that the signer is basically the perfect place to to have an audit trail um, because it sees every single movement uh, of funds uh, it has all of the initiators uh, namely who who in uh, who sent that uh, rpc command and so on and so forth so it uh, it might just be interesting from that point of view to really have a step-by-step -step, uh, account of what happened to your funds and be able to say, oh, this was initiated by cashier uh, A and, uh, and then later settled uh, after 10 minutes or so. Yeah. And so when we're speaking about the signer here, what device is that running on? Like, is that on a phone? Is that on a PC somewhere? Like an always connected PC? Like, what are your thinking? What are your thoughts there on the signer for the typical customer here? Yeah, so the signer is basically just a piece of software at the moment. It is a library that we bundled with the client itself. So wherever you have your app running, uh, it, it basically is included in the app itself. And it will automatically connect whenever you have the app open. That being said, we can have any number of, uh, of signers for individual nodes. So you might have your, your app on the phone, 
you might have a Raspberry Pi at home that sort of the first step towards taking on more ownership that is online 24 hours. And so whenever uh, whenever your uh, your app starts the note or we start the note because there is an incoming payment, you could have the Raspberry Pi auto connect to your node. Uh, it also suits very nicely for uh, for Uncle Jim setups or Uncle Bob setups. I can never remember yeah. which one it is. Uncle Jim, yeah. Uh, where, uh, where basically you have one uh, one uh, tech enthusiast that that sort of digs all of this stuff, and will uh, we can set up signers for their family and closest friends. So that is uh, that is how it looks at the moment. Um, but we are collaborating with the very fine sign- uh, lightning signer team, uh, Def Random and Kensedrick, on basically building out the protocol for a uh, for a verifying lightning signer this is open source their work is, is actually awesome uh, and uh, uh, I think the goal uh, in the end there is to make uh, to make it such that we have a signer protocol that we can attach to any uh, lightning Im- implementation not just core lightning and act as a as a remote signer that can then basically take care of your funds and whether that's hardware uh, or software or on each app, it really doesn't doesn't make a, uh, make a lot of difference. Yeah, and I'm curious as well, like in terms of the approach with, so let's say if somebody's doing this and they are presumably like using a phone app to connect back, right? Like using Spark or something similar mm-hmm. to connect back to their Greenlight node. What happens if they go offline at the time? Is it just kind of like the node can still kind of accept? A payment because it might have already generated the invoice and if you're offline it's no big deal like like we were saying because you're more likely to be a leaf node as opposed to like a really deeply well connected node very close to the center of the lightning channel graph if you will yeah the main issue with uh, with uh, users going offline is basically that we cannot sign off any changes on on funds, and that sadly includes where receiving uh, receiving invoices. So there's a bit of a trade off. Uh, we trade uh, we traded off more security for a bit less availability, but we're uh, we're hoping to uh, to compensate for that by basically enabling users to have multiple signers to have multiple apps. And reach out to to signers that uh, that might not be online at the moment. So there is a bit of a notification system in the background, where uh, where we plan to hey, there's there's some action going on. There is a signature required from from a signer. Let's try to reach out to anybody who isn't online at the moment and and see if uh, if they could potentially sign off on it. Gotcha. The node themselves, if the signer isn't uh, isn't present, isn't much use uh, because we can't actually do much so what we do is after a a period of inactivity we will shut down that node that is basically how we can uh, besides the high density deployments we can do for core lightning we can save additional resources and these uh, savings uh, are are then passed on to 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 users uh, once we figure out how to monetize this gotcha and so just to give people a rough idea, like what kind of cost are they looking at if they want to sign up and have a green light node? So the uh, the cost on our ends uh, are really really low. I'm I'm speaking uh, sub two dollars per month per user. Oh, um, wow. Okay. And and so we don't we don't really know how we are uh, we are going to basically pay for it uh, uh, as of right now. 
Um, there are a couple of uh, uh, of things we we are looking into, and hopefully we can hide that as much as possible from users, such that it really becomes a no brainer to to operate. Right? We'd like to, for example, instead of uh, instead of charging explicitly for uh, for the the notes, we'd like to charge for uh, payments being sent and received uh, through the uh, through the built in fee mechanism in Lightning, and that has the nice side effect that it is basically paper use. Uh, so you're not using your node, perfect. We, you, you, don't, you don't get charged. If, uh, if you're a very active user, then part of, uh, of, that, uh, uh, of your payments is going towards the node itself. And that is basically built into the Lightning Protocol itself. We also have a number of, of partnerships with LSPs uh, whom we are basically providing uh, providing users uh, and so there, there there are ways we can basically agree on uh, with them uh, how uh, if if they want to share some of their revenue with us yeah so that's pretty much still in flux can't promise we will manage to make it transparent but uh, we're definitely trying to yeah interesting and so uh, in terms of things like managing your watchtower as well so you mentioned mm-hmm. this idea so Currently, it's probably not that easy to run a watchtower unless you already are a technical user. So this might be another aspect of it. So what's the um, watchtower setup going to look like here? So what uh, what we do is basically we provide a watchtower by default. You uh, one, uh, If you spin up your node, you are automatically registered with the watchtower. Uh, we're not charging extra for that. So uh, it, it basically is just a free added service. But once you uh, once you have uh, started digging into Lightning, it might be interesting for you to sort of start using, uh, become more uh, involved in some of these processes. And the Watchtower is just one of these examples, right? You can, for example, have us run one Watchtower for you, um, but you could start by basically taking the Watchtower and deploying it on your infrastructure and have a, an additional safety net, right? You, your watchtower could uh, could watch the uh, the channels for you, as well as we watch for uh, watch for uh, for the channels. And so this is this is part of our offboarding strategy, where we have a number of different uh, different services, including the watchtower, including the database backups, including the routing information for uh, for the network that you can selectively sort of start streaming onto your platform and sort of see how things work um, before making the big move of the actual node move, uh, and move that over to, to your infrastructure. That being said, the inverse is also true. We have a couple of services that we will also offer to, to users that have offboarded. Uh, so for example, we are currently working on a reverse proxy that gives each node a unique uh, URL and that will then be fixed across all time. Uh, so if you have your, your wallet configured to connect to a certain uh, Lightning node that is at the moment hosted by us, and then you decide to migrate it off onto your own infrastructure, that URL will, uh, will continue to be reachable from outside. And we will forward the, those connections to your node instead of our, uh, our hosted node. I see, yeah. And so you don't have to reconfigure your uh, applications. And all we do is we basically look at the encrypted uh, stream. Uh, there, there is a server name indication extension to the TLS protocol, which allows us to say, oh, you want to talk to XYZ dot 
greenlight.blockstream.com. Okay, here we'll hand that forward. And all we see is, is basically encrypted traffic. We don't see the contents and so on and so forth. Um, and it uh, basically allows you not to have to reconfigure all of your applications uh, just because you uh, you had you migrated off of the platform. And that is similar for backups and, and watchtowers and so on and so forth. Uh, we plan to offer them as well. Uh, so yeah, right. So the idea is they can sort of gracefully offboard. And then so on a backups point of view, as you bring that up, what does that look like? So, I mean, there's, I guess there's different concepts to understand, right? So they, that user will have their seed backup, right? That's their 24 words, but then separately there's database backup and, you know, like what's contained as part of this backup. So the backup we, we talk about is, uh, is actually just a, a database backup. So we run a, a replicated cluster of Postgres uh, databases on, in the cloud and we do uh, we basically use those to back all of the nodes of all of the users replication is a first barrier of defense right if one server goes down we do have other servers uh, servers to fall back on and we take uh, uh, we take incremental snapshots of uh, of each change in the database itself so that we can uh, we can recover should everything basically be flooded and then we can take those uh, those incremental backups and, can, and we can stream them to a client. So in that sense, even uh, even if from from today to tomorrow we were to disappear completely, you could take this backup, uh, rehydrate it, and import it into your uh, your database, and you'd basically have a functioning node again. And so. The other thing people are having to learn if they want to be a self-sovereign Lightning user is channel management. So who do I open channels with? How do I rebalance them when they go out of whack? Do I need to use on-chain and off-chain swapping? Like if, let's say, mm -hmm. I've got all the sats on my side of the channel, I need to sweep it out. How does that work in a green light context? So that is definitely part of uh, of the promise here that uh, that we want to assist as much as possible with uh, with this kind of management, and we want to make it as as easy for users to to start as uh, as possible. And for this, we have uh, we have a number of agreements with uh, liquidity providers that participate in a system with us that is still being built. Uh, so not not everything is set in stone at the moment. But the idea is basically that if a wallet notices that, oh, I'm creating an invoice, but I don't have any incoming liquidity, I need an incoming channel, then we can, we can reach out to these LSPs, sort of figure out what the, best, uh, what the best capacity for them is, and then send back those proposals to the app themselves. And then the app can say something like, oh, you don't have, you're not well connected enough. Would you like us to, to do that for you? And if the user clicks yes, we can basically pick one of these, one of these proposed channels. We can stage it with the liquidity provider. And once the payment comes in, only then we will go through the motions of actually opening the channel, transferring the payment and uh, uh, sending back the payment for the liquidity provider. So it should be really low touch, but like I said, it's uh, probably the, the difficulties are usually in the details here. Of course, right. And it, it does remind me a little bit of this uh, like Phoenix on the fly channel creation, but, but maybe arguably in a more decentralized-ish kind of way, or at least with multiple possible liquidity providers. Whereas in the context of, let's say, a user who's receiving on Phoenix, your channel is coming from async and only async. So I guess that's one difference there. 
Exactly. Yeah, we're we're also looking into into how we could use dual funding, uh, which Core Lightning pioneered, and liquidity ads, of course, which are pretty much uh, the first half of the of the uh, of the uh, whole construction. Right. We we know who is willing to open what channels for what price, and now we just need to make sure that we can actually open it with zero confirmations. Uh, that that they uh, LSP knows how to wake us up if the node is uh, currently offline and uh, and all of these smaller details but we're uh, we're looking very much for a uh, protocol uh, level solution first yeah that's really interesting to see and so with well dual funded channels or collaborative channel openings that's uh really cool as well because then we're having a scenario where both partners of that channel are putting up some money into that channel and so it just becomes like well, I guess the main one benefit is obviously the channel starts out with with the possibility to send either way. It's not just like I open the channel to you and I can only spend to you. I can actually receive from you as well. Yeah. And the other part is maybe a little bit of a privacy benefit in that on chain, it's not as clear who's put what into where, and so that might also help from a a little bit from a privacy point of view. Exactly. Not not just that, but also you have a very much reduced on uh, on chain footprint, uh, which yeah. means you are saving on fees. Uh, you have less data to track. You don't uh, you don't have that much of a footprint overall, and so it uh, it definitely makes it harder for for an outside observer to see. Oh, um, so who added which funds to this channel? So it it is basically a coin join uh, to create a a channel. Yeah, so maybe it's like a like a pay join, right? Like we both yeah. contribute into uh, that. And so, from a liquidity ads point of view, is that something being managed at the green light node level, or is like the user being able to do that themselves? How does that part work? So, generally speaking, we do uh, we do expose the entire RPC interface from from uh, Core Lightning. So, uh, if you have something that currently uses the core lightning api you can uh, you can just adapt it to use the green light node api and that includes stuff like uh, uh, like adding uh, adding liquidity ads or listing liquidity ads and uh, then opening channels um, we definitely do encourage users to get familiar with the with the api itself and so we also don't put any limits as to whom whom you are allowed to open channels to. So you could basically just just do it manually. It it is after all just a core lightning node in the cloud. I see. Yeah. So I mean, you could just yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, like you could SSH in and just literally do it all command line if you wanted to. But the idea is this is like making it easy for people who maybe are not at that level. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um. And so turning to I guess Core Lightning as well. I see, uh, you know, the new version, version zero point eleven, uh, has um, the one I saw is uh, you've now got the ability to have multiple live channels to the same peer. Now this is kind of an interesting difference in some of the implementations because before it was like, oh, people could do multiple ones with other implementations, but with C Lightning back then, it was seen like no, just one channel. And now yep. I guess it's kind of seen like, well, okay, this is where people are going. We're just going to have to support this now. Is that basically what happened? <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, we for the longest time we had a bit of an ideological um, stance against uh, having multiple channels with a single peer, uh, because if you uh, if you open two channels to the same peer, then you're not increasing your uh, your resilience against uh, single points of failure. Uh, whereas if you if you were to use that second channel to open to somebody else, 
you could basically increase your resilience uh, and reduce your uh, your risk of uh, basically that one golden uh, peer going down and you being cut off from the network. And uh, it has been it has been a feature that has been uh, long requested. Uh, we still maintain that it is probably better to have a diverse set of uh, of peers right. and then do indirect routing to actually reach your destination instead of basically just opening a channel directly to Starbucks and then doubling down on that every time that your that, uh, that your channel is exhausted. But yeah, it, it has been requested and uh, there are some scenarios, especially for large uh, nodes that uh, that sort of have built this backbone in the network uh, for uh, with huge channels. For, for them, it, it was really important to have this uh, ability to increase capacity on a whim. And uh, we always wanted that to be splicing, where you could basically add or remove funds from an existing channel without any downtime but it, it just took a bit longer to to build out splicing um, we now have one engineer working on it and he's making a lot of progress and i'm really looking forward to after six years of talking about splicing actually seeing it in action but uh, yeah the, basically multiplexing channels has has been a feature that that we just needed to support after all and gotcha. Rusty yeah. has done a, an amazing job at refactoring all of the stuff and making it possible uh, in the last in, in the last release. So kudos to him. Back to the show in a moment. Brains are the creators of Brains OS Plus. This is firmware that you should be thinking about installing on your ASIC mining machine. You can improve your efficiency by as much as 25%. You can point your hash rate towards any pool, or if you use this and then also point your hash rate towards slush pool, you get 0% pool fees. Now, it's on the website at brains.com. You can go there and check which models are supported out of the S19 range, S17 range. And in the development pipeline, there's What's Minor M20S and some other Ant Minor X19 models coming soon. So this is a great way to get more hash rate for your electricity spend and improve your efficiency. So that website is brains.com. That's B-R-A-I-I-N-S.com. Unchained Capital are making it easy to upgrade your security to multi-signature. With Unchained Capital, you can hold two keys and they will hold the third key. And in doing so, you are removing single points of failure from your security setup. So if you need assistance with this, there is a concierge onboarding program where you sign up, you pay upfront, they will send you the hardware wallets and do a call with you to teach you how to do this. Remember, even if you've never held your own private keys before, you can use this program and they will teach you how to do it, set up the vault and deposit $1,000 of Bitcoin in your vault. And with Unchained, you can also make use of their education and other services available. You can find all of this over on the website at unchained.com slash concierge. Use the code Levera for a discount. Lend at HODL HODL is a peer-to-peer Bitcoin-backed lending platform where you can anonymously borrow stablecoins against your Bitcoin. With Lend at HODL HODL, you no longer need to sell your Bitcoin to get some liquidity. You can borrow stablecoins by putting up some Bitcoin into an over-collateralized loan. With Lend at HODL HODL, all deals happen directly between users. So you can go there, you can either take an offer that's already there, or you can put up your own offer, depending on how long you want to borrow and the interest rate that you are looking to pay. So go and check that out. The website is lend.hodlhodl.com. Back to the show with Christian. 
Yeah, and I'm and I'm excited to see splicing as well because I think that would make it a lot more practical to. So, I mean, right now people are using, let's say, swapping in and out to sort of manage the current size of that channel. But if you actually wanted to make it bigger or make it smaller, that's where a splice could really be a cool feature to have because then you're not having to close it down, reopen the channel. It's yep. just one on-chain transaction to, I guess, resize that channel. So I, I guess, but it's one of those things where we can talk about that idea, but actually in practice, achieving that is maybe not as easy to do as what we're talking about. There are a lot of details in that, but I mean, even more exciting than than adjusting the size of a channel, which, okay, you might do every once in a while, is the fact that all of a sudden you can uh, you can perform on-chain payments out of, uh, of a channel, gotcha. um, which gives you this, this ability to basically have an app that is pure lightning. Uh, it shows you one balance. Hey, this is how much you uh, you you currently own, and then you scan uh, an on-chain Bitcoin address and and send uh, send a payment to it. And what happens in the background is basically it takes all of the funds that uh, that you had uh, in a channel. It quickly closes it, splices out some funds to that address, and then reopens it without any downtime. Yeah, and so that that is a huge mental barrier at the moment uh, that that people have to overcome. Oh, I have an on-chain balance, I have an off-chain balance, uh, and then what do you do if if the off-chain balance isn't sufficient anymore? Do you open a channel now? Oh, you have to wait an hour for that to happen. And so I think just from a usability point of view, splicing is an amazing feature. Yeah, that's clever. Yeah. And I think it's like there's different approaches in the ecosystem right now, right? Like with Phoenix, as an example, if you use that, it's really you're paying out to an on-chain address. It's like using a swap provider in the background. Yeah. Or with Moon, it's sort of kind of like a splice, but kind of it's slightly different. And so, yeah, it would be really cool to see like genuine splicing coming into Lightning. So, uh, yeah, I'm excited for that. Um, and, I think that's cool. And, yeah, it, and it's less trust, uh, trusted than, than a swap because if you want to, yeah. uh, if you do a swap onto, uh, onto an on-chain address that doesn't have the ability of actually transporting an HTLC, then what you're basically doing is giving the swap provider, hey, here's, here's a payment. And the swap provider says, okay, I promise I'll turn around and send that on chain yeah. uh, because we don't, have, uh, we don't have a tool to send to a generic address in a secure, uh, uh, in a secure way that uh, is atomic, right? Yeah, so right. That is that is the main issue. Yeah, there. yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It depends. Obviously, it's so many things. There's so many moving parts and variables here, but it could end up being cheaper too, right? Because right. if you're just splicing out, you might not have to pay a service provider who's giving you this swap in and out functionality. Now, of course, we may still need swap providers in the Lightning network, just as we need LSPs, Lightning service providers, in the network. But in this specific example, the splice out may be cheaper, hypothetically. <laughs> Well, the, the swap provider does also have an advantage in that he can uh, aggregate a lot of swaps into gotcha. uh, into a single address. So it probably depends on how much traffic there is on the swap and how long you're willing to wait for this aggregation to happen. Um, yeah. Because if there is a payment that comes in every hour and the swap provider waits for 10 of them to accumulate, gotcha. you're probably waiting for 10. So there, there's probably a balance there. Right. So, so if they can do like a batch transaction, it's kind of the similar dynamic of, you know, exchanges, instead of just doing exchange withdrawal one to one each time, they can do like one batch transaction out to like 10 people or 50 people at once. So big saving there. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Um, and so just in terms of the, 
Oh, one other thing uh, around making lightning ubiquitous, right? So I know there are obviously there are different standards in play at the time at different times. One idea I've seen from Miles Suter of Cash App is this idea of BIP21. And so it's like this idea of having, and apparently it's quite an old standard, but like the idea is they're sort of doing it in reverse. They've got like a lightning payment and an encoded Bitcoin address in there. And his idea is that, hey, what if everyone uses BIP21 to try to, you know, make it more in the background? So the, the end user, like obviously if you're a hardcore Bitcoin and lightning guy, you know, you love it, you're, you're fine with that. But the end, like the average retail end user who doesn't really understand like the difference of Bitcoin and lightning, maybe there's something there. But I'm curious, what are your thoughts on that? Do you see it like there are other standards out there? We're not settled on this yet. Do you have any thoughts on making that user experience very seamless? So it, it's it's definitely something that uh, that we have been thinking about for a long time, especially since Bolt eleven includes an uh, an on chain fallback address. But uh, from experience, we found that uh, that sort of the behavior of uh, on chain payments and off chain payments are so different that you certainly don't want to have an automatic fail, uh, fallback. Gotcha. Um, so while I, while I do agree that. At having an alternative way of uh, of paying for a, a transaction, be that on chain or off chain, and Bolt Eleven obviously uses uh, uses the uh, Lightning payment as default and on chain as as fallback, and Bip Twenty One uses on chain as default and could use other methods as as fallbacks. I do think that uh, that we need to be very careful about when do we offer a, a fallback at all. For example, if I'm standing in front of a point of sale and all I bought is a chewing gum, then I don't want to be surprised because now I have to wait half an hour for an on-chain transaction to confirm. Right. Yeah. Um, and because once once we initiated that payment, there's no turning back. Uh, we we can't we can't really abort uh, in in mid session, and so that is uh, that is something to be aware of but i totally agree that uh, that providing uh, a full matrix of different payment options is is definitely desirable uh, so that users can pick and choose what whatever works for them and if none works well we're falling back to what we already had right the for, the, the single payment didn't work so yeah it's it's not worse yeah and it, it does get challenging because of having to deal with different scenarios, right? So as you said, if it's a chewing gum, maybe it's a dollar for that chewing gum. You're not really going to pay a dollar or even 50 cents on-chain transaction fee for that. So maybe in certain cases, it would have to be restricted to say, no, lightning only. We don't want to do any on-chain below a certain value. But then above a certain value, it might be like, no, on-chain only, right? So it's like the other way. So there's different ways that it could end up going. uh, Yeah. yeah. For, for for this kind of trade-off, we we have we have introduced uh, the idea of a fee budget in in Core Lightning, and uh, what we do is basically we compute zero point five percent of the of the uh, tra- amount to be transferred. Uh, we allocate to to a fee budget, and inside of that fee budget, we do a number of optimizations that uh, some go towards improving payment efficiency. Uh, we're looking into uh, into Picard payments, for example. Those might not end up being the cheapest ones, but the ones that, that have the highest success rate. And we also use some of that fee budget to, uh, to obfuscate uh, payments, for example, to add shadow routes to sort of fuzz the fees at, at various points in in the payment and the idea behind that is uh, is obviously that uh, there should be there should be a percentage below which 
the user really doesn't care. There's other stuff that is more important, like their time to completion. And uh, a similar concept could be introduced for the fallback on-chain payments as well, uh, where you say, hey, all I'm interested in is speed of completion or uh, low fees, but I, I don't care about the exact fees. They don't have to be optimal or minimal in, uh, in, in that sense. I, I have a certain experience that I'm looking for, and please provide me with that payment experience. Yeah, that's cool to see. I am hopeful. Like, I think one interesting stat, and I think part of it comes to education as well, because there was an interesting stat actually. I saw Matt Alborg from BitRefill pointed out, like he was, I think he was looking through some data and seeing that out of all the Cash App customers of BitRefill, as in people with the Cash mm-hmm. App paying a BitRefill, that apparently even though Cash App can do Lightning payouts, only one third of the users were using Lightning. So for that, so. I don't know exactly mm. what happened, but maybe it's like they don't know which button to press on BitRefill, like at, just as an example, right? And if it's already at that point where, let's say, all these users could be using Lightning and just massively faster, smoother experience, lower fees, you know, it's an educational thing, but also maybe a technological thing as well that as a community, uh, you know, as the ecosystem of businesses, developers and like advocates have to think about that, right? Yeah, it's it's definitely a chicken and egg problem, right? For uh, for vendors to to show Lightning prominently, there needs to be a sufficiently large user base, and for there to be a sufficiently large user base, there has to be enough awareness that uh, this seller actually accepts Lightning too. So, I think we'll eventually get uh, get that breakthrough, uh, and I see awareness of of Lightning payments and their advantages, but also their disadvantages growing over time. So I wanted to chat a little bit about any out as well, mm-hmm. um, just to you know get an update from your thoughts. I mean, last time we spoke, it was, it was a while ago on this, uh, you know, about any out. Could you give us a, a bit of your updated thoughts on where any out is at in terms of you know development and thinking? Yeah, so um, it it wouldn't be an episode with me without chilling L two at least once. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> And for, for us to get L2, we need something that provides us with the base functionality. And any prevout is exactly that base functionality or is one way to achieve that base functionality. At the moment, the, uh, the proposal itself is, uh, is quite well reviewed. It has, uh, it has been uh, merged since, uh, since AJ Towns uh, ported it over to Taproot. Which is also when the uh, when the name change uh, from Sikash no input, which was my original draft, uh, changed to uh, any prevout uh, or any prevout any script, which is a much better name, by the way. Sikash um, no input really was confusing, and uh, so the specification is pretty much settled. Um, there are some uh, experimental implementations of it uh, in branches, both by AJ and uh, Richard Myers. And Richard Myers has built out a uh, working example of how L2 could be built on uh, on this branch. Um, so we are seeing uh, we are seeing that uh, any prevout is uh, actually fulfills its promise of enabling L2. I was pretty sure about that, but it's always nice to to have confirmation of that. And uh, we are basically uh, looking into different uh, different uh, ways to make use of any prevout beyond L2. So technically speaking, if any prevout were merged, we could have the base uh, uh, base L2 system working, onto which then different uh, different enhancements and improvements are stacked on top. But as it is, any prevout would give us that. 
And ever since uh, Jeremy came out with uh, OpsyTV, uh, we've also been looking into into his his use cases and see how they interact with any prevout. And some of them are interesting enough. We can uh, we can build out some of uh, some of these use cases using OpsyTV. So that's something that I didn't expect. But uh, but for example, we can uh, we can reconstruct some form of covenants. Uh, using uh, using any prevout and uh, the non-recursive ones, uh, the non-controversial ones, I should say, and uh, we can also build a form of congestion control, which is something that Jeremy has uh, has proposed. So there is a bit of overlap between the two. Uh, sadly, though, OpCTV alone doesn't enable L2. Uh, for that, we would need another change called OpCheckSig from Stack, which, if I remember correctly, is a bit more controversial, but Hey, if if we if we can get uh, if we can get the functionality we need for L two, I don't care if it's called APO or CTV plus CSFS. Um, so as long as we, as we get uh, we get what we need to make progress here. I see. Yeah, and also as I understand, there's been more discussion on the mailing list and things. And I think even the last episode we spoke a little bit about it. But if you could help us explain and understand, like help us understand a little bit about some of these ideas, like like a pinning attack and layered commitments. Well, let's start with pinning attacks. So if you could just help us understand what is a pinning attack in, and what's the, I guess, the significance of this in an L2 context? Yeah, uh, so pinning attacks were something that uh, that we found in while developing anchor outputs for, for Lightning. And the idea is basically that if we have some Malleability in the uh, in the transactions, namely that uh, if the two of us, for example, manage a channel together, then they are first party malleable in that I can uh, I can change some parts of uh, of this of this transaction, and you can change some parts of this transaction, and anchor outputs increases that malleability so that you can have a child transaction attached to uh, to one of the outputs. And if you then take this uh, 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 take this bundle of the closing uh, transaction for the channel plus the uh, plus the uh, child that is paying for for fees, and make that child really big, you end up with a bundle that has a, a gigantic fee, uh, but a very low fee rate. Um, so um, it might be. 10 kilobytes and it might have 10 kilosatoshis attached to it. Uh, so one V byte per byte, but the overall fee is 10 kilosats. Uh, kilo, uh, so, uh, so that would position that transaction very low in the mempool uh, itself. So it would be very unlikely for, for a miner to pick it up and, and include it in a block. But nevertheless, it, it is sort of tainting the mempool uh, in that if you perform this attack, and I wanted to sort of fee bump my uh, my version of that transaction. Whoever sees first your transaction and then my transaction would basically say to my transaction, "Oh, you don't have enough uh, sufficiently uh, sufficiently large overall fees. Maybe despite my transaction paying twice the fee rate, right? Uh, simply because for us to make a replacement, both the absolute fee and the fee rate has to be uh, has to be beaten, basically." And then people were uh, were were sort of uh, take, picking up my chant of of, of saying L two fixes this, and one voice was missing, and that was mine because I then had to turn around and say nope, 
this is also true for L2. So that, that was indeed a sad day. The good news here is that we, uh, we have a very large number of, uh, of ideas on how we can fix it. The problem with many ideas is also that uh, there is a lot of competition as always. So whose idea is, is the best and uh, what, uh, what are the downsides of each individual uh, idea? So um, there are, for example, uh, people who are proposing that, uh, that in, uh, we should sort of separate the mempool replacement logic into different different concerns because that fee rate bump is what miners really care about right uh, if i have a transaction that pays me more fees for the same number of bytes hey i'll take the one with with more fees right uh, whereas the absolute fee uh, rule is more of a denial of service uh, protection where we could have an attack of somebody creating a huge transaction which with tiny fees, but just enough to be relayed on the network. And then once uh, uh, the next second they shave off one byte, therefore they have a higher fee rate in absolute terms and they could send it through again. And that that is basically prevented by requiring an, a bigger overall fee. Um, and the idea is, uh, and, and one of the ideas is basically to say, hey, instead of looking into the fees to decide on replacements, we could rate limit what uh, what peers can send us so you uh, you're my peer uh, you just sent me uh, 10 kilobytes of transactions now i will accept the next transaction from you uh, only after a certain uh, certain period of the cooldown period basically but as always the discussions here are a bit a bit more complex right. and uh, lengthy <laughs> Yeah, and what happens is, is, at least from what I can notice on things like mailing list discussion and online discussion is sometimes if there's not one clear winner, then people just spend all day just constantly arguing about this and that and there's not really like a clear kind of this is the path forward and then sometimes things happen, sort of fall into a gridlock, uh, unfortunately, in some cases. It, it has to be said, though, that this is part of the process. Uh, it is very important for us to basically have this time to stew over different ideas and sort of uh, think about all of the different things that might be impacted by one uh, proposal uh, or the other. And so I uh, I think this, this sort of lengthy discussion and lengthy process to, to actually reach a conclusion is, is a feature in this case. This is this is not a system that that we want to change willy nilly. This is something that that we want to keep for the next hundred, two hundred years, up and running. So, what's an additional year uh, compared to centuries of of uptime? Yeah, and so what's this uh, layered commitment idea? So the layered uh, commitment idea is something that AJ Towns came up, very pro a prolific researcher. And uh, the idea is that uh, we can cut down the waiting times for L2 in the worst case uh, a bit. Basically, the way that the transactions are structured in, uh, in L2 is that we have an update transaction which sort of ratchets us forward uh, in the states. And then based off of that uh, update transaction, we have a settlement transaction which actually has the desired effects in the end, right? That there's an output for me, there's an output for you, and there might be an HTLC attached to it. Now, closing a transaction now incurs this, this two-phase close, right? We first send, uh, settle, uh, settle the channel itself by sending update plus settlement transaction, and only then we get to settle whatever is built on top of it. For example, an HTLC. 
I see. And all of this includes timeouts in it, right? So like uh, like two hours of waiting time, six hours of waiting time, and so on and so forth. And that has the slightly negative effect of the timeouts of the settlement transaction and the HTLC summing up to a longer timeout. And what uh, what layered commitments does, it takes the uh, it takes some of the time critical uh, uh, structures and moves them not on the settlement transaction, but moves them on the update transaction. So as soon as the update transaction is sent to the network, we can already start ticking down the timers for HTLCs. There's a couple of pros and cons. The pro, of course, is uh, shorter timeouts. Timeouts as in your funds are not available for six hours until we have we have asked the blockchain judge to sort of decide, hey, you misbehaved or you misbehaved. And on the uh, on the con side is that it is a, a much more complex uh, structure that loses some of what uh, what was attractive to, uh, in in L two, namely the simplicity and the cleanly uh, cleanliness of of separation between concerns, because you're now moving the HTLC back into the update mechanism itself, which is one thing that I tried my hardest uh, to to avoid in in L two. But yeah, it's it's an open discussion, and and we will we will sort of reach a conclusion eventually, I guess. Yeah, gotcha. Uh, and because, yeah, like you were saying, there's various positives about that L2 aspect, right? It makes watchtowers much cheaper and easier to operate. It makes a whole bunch of other things easier. So it remains to be seen what happens there. And I think one other critique I've seen online is this idea that, oh, because L2 is changing the penalty model. So whereas mm-hmm. currently in Lightning, there's this penalty model that if, let's say, I'm a bad guy, I try to cheat you, your penalty close, you can like, Steal, you can like take those funds back from me or more than I lose. I have an incentive to be honest, right? And so there's this argument yeah. of, oh, in L2 land, you know, anyone can just try it because at the worst, the other guy can only just publish the correct state and you don't have like this sort of incentive or this negative incentive that you're not going to lose money. But then I've seen discussion on this idea that, oh, you know, could they try to re-implement like a penalty model in the L2 sense or would it be just more seen like, you know, keep the simplicity of L2? Yeah, so uh, usually my my uh, answer to to the lack of penalties in in L two is that there is a small penalty uh, in the form of of the uh, transaction fee that you use to basically try to cheat. While that might not uh, not be as harsh as losing the entirety of your funds, it is still a paper cut. And uh, if at the same time we can we can reduce the chances of you succeeding by making watchtowers much much more uh, feasible and much cheaper to operate, then we've basically achieved the same effect after all. Yeah. Risk is always uh, the multiplication of chances of something bad happening. In this case, you successfully cheating, which reduced by uh, basically improving watchtowers times the uh, the cost of uh, of actually succeeding of this event actually occurring and in this case by making it uh, so so we've reduced the cost but we've increased the chances of you being caught and in the end that uh, that can cancel out as for additional penalty mechanisms built on top of uh, of l2 i think that is definitely a possibility but it would reintroduce some of the complexity that we try to eliminate with L2 yeah. again, namely the asymmetry. Sort of unsolving the problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 reintroducing asymmetry, which then makes makes it really hard again for for multi-party channels. 
simply because if we have out of a set of n users, we have to be able to pinpoint who misbehaved out of this and then sort of distribute the penalty among the participants. It's not as clear cut as it was in a two-party channel where uh, you cheated, I get your funds. With n parties, it becomes very much more difficult to, to discern. Yeah, right. And I think the simpler L2 model is probably what I, would, what I would rather see personally, because at the end of the day, as you were saying, part of this is about scalability as well, right? Taking lightning to the world. And we all know that current lightning does not scale non-custodially to the world, right? Like this is just a, everyone understands this. And so it's about what's the best way to make that more feasible. And I, I think that's probably the point to understand is that if we could get into this multi-party channel world, it actually makes it easier for more people to self-custody, which arguably strengthens the system. But I, yeah. I also understand that you know there's big arguments as well, and you know some of that is fair enough because some people could say, look, just no more changes to Bitcoin, right? There's the let's say the Bitcoin conservatives or the the ossification crowd, right? This kind of never change anything, like maintenance updates only, no changes, right? And I can understand that view too. So I'm hopeful that we we can get the right kind of technology in that helps, but at the same time, there, every change has a risk. So, yeah, I'm curious what yeah. your thoughts are on the, the whole ossification crowd. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've followed the Bitcoin project for the last 13 years, and, and I've seen it going from a very experimental thing where Satoshi one night just pushes some code and everybody just deploys it to this more rigorous approach of, of proposals, arguments, uh, followed by reviews, followed by implementations, followed by tests, followed by deployment. And I think it's it's only natural that that for a system that that ha, uh, that has gained this importance in our daily lives, uh, we should be very cautious about what changes go in and what uh, what don't. And most importantly of uh, of all of this is probably that uh, that the process has to be slow on purpose. We cannot rush any of this, and we do have to give all of the uh, all of the proposals the, the sufficient time to stew, to get that feedback, to get people excited about it, uh, to get people experimenting with it. And, uh, and maybe out of this discussion, then, then we find out a, a much cleaner, much nicer way of doing, uh, doing things. For example, my, uh, the, the any prevout uh, proposal, I would be absolutely thrilled if, if that were to be merged. But if something else comes along that gives us the necess uh, necessary functionality and that might be even more efficient than, than any prevout, it's a small hit on my ego, but it's a huge step for uh, for the ecosystem as a whole because we then can get uh, get uh, get what we wanted to do uh, from from the get go, but in a better uh, and uh, and more efficient way. I haven't seen this proposal yet, but uh, but maybe it will come up, and uh, hence also my my approach when uh, when proposing uh, any prevout, I, I wanted to have a very hands off approach. And instead of trying to push any prev out, I wanted to get uh, to get people excited about the possibilities of what we what we build on top of it. Uh, simply because the uh, the functionality we can get can maybe get in multiple different ways, and we shouldn't we shouldn't concentrate on on the name on the tin, so to speak. 
Yeah, interesting stuff, and hopefully uh, there'll be um, some discussion there. I think uh, I've heard I heard an interesting characterization uh, the other day. Uh, Shinobi was on um, with Citadel Dispatch, on with Rusty and with Matt O'Dell, and he was characterizing it like it's it's like this anarchic mob, and if you want to change, you need to convince the anarchic mob they should take your change, right? Like at the end of the day, like, I mean, it's a bit kind of oversimplifying in certain things, but hey, it, it kind of is true, right? Like if the users and the developers and the miners all want this, it's going to happen. But I think what we see is maybe there's this discussion and it's difficult for the same person who puts it out there to be kind of the only promoter of it, that there needs to be enough other people who also really want this thing and they're willing to push for it. And so maybe that's what has to happen with any prevout, right? If, if people want it, then there needs to be enough people out there saying, yeah, I want this thing because I want L2 or even if it's not any prevout and something else that gives us a similar scaling functionality or technology. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's what we want to get in the end and not how we how we get it that is important, uh, I think. And and so it is much, much better to create excitement about uh, about applications, about use cases rather than the how we do it. We as engineers usually get very hung up on on how we do it and and the technical trade-offs. But as end users, it it is much more practical for for users to imagine what the thing that we enable by it uh, is rather than the technical trade-offs that that are required for for actual sanity review in this case. But yeah, I totally agree with the anarchic mob. that's That's a very good picture. And yeah, let's let's give people the time to actually make up their mind because there might be somebody asleep in that anarchic mob, and and when they wake up, they might bring the new uh, the new solution to the table. Yeah, well, let's see. Hey, so uh, so let's uh, wrap up the episode then. So we spoke a little bit about Greenlight, this idea for you can think of it like a training wheels for your core Lightning node. And the idea is, you're a business, you're a interested, enthusiastic user, you can use it. Uh, and we spoke a little bit about, you know, the Lightning Network as well as uh, any Prevout as well. So, um, do you have any closing thoughts for the listeners? And uh, where can people find you online? So I'm uh, Snyke on Twitter, uh, S N Y K E, and uh, C Decker almost everywhere else. Uh, and I'm always happy to talk about uh, about tech and uh, and some uh, funny things about uh, about Bitcoin and Lightning. I also like just talking about lightning in general to be honest and uh yeah i'm i'm really looking forward to 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 seeing where where green light gets us we hope that that it builds uh it builds a solid foundation for us uh to for app developers to build on for users that just want to build uh build out a, a prototype at hackathons and of course serve as an on uh, ramp for self sovereign uh for eventually self sovereign uh, bitcoiners uh, to learn uh, the ropes and get to get the expertise they need to move around in this world. Excellent. Well, thanks again for joining me. Thank you so much. Get the show notes at stefanlevera.com slash 378. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the Citadels.